You don't have to be a petrol head to know that this picture shows a Model T Ford. And you probably also know that this was the first cheap car in the world for the masses. Made in the 1920s using new mass production techniques. And you'll no doubt also be familiar with the promise made by the company chairman, Henry Ford. That his customers could have any colour they wanted, so long as it was black. By eliminating the element of choice, Ford was able to minimise his production costs and keep the price of his cars as low as possible. Now, I want to suggest this morning that Henry Ford's attitude, any colour, so long as it's black, has got something to tell us about Jesus. Now, by any standard, that's a most peculiar claim to make. So I need to explain what I mean. You see, in 2017, we face a very real temptation to want to treat Jesus rather like a new car purchase. These days, although cars are overwhelmingly mass-produced, we're free to choose from a whole range of options, the colour, the level of trim, the engine size, and so on. Only this week I read that a modest car like the new Nissan Micra will have 110 different combinations of options. And in the same way, we often want to choose those aspects of Jesus which we find attractive and ignore or reject those aspects which we find unpalatable. So some people are happy with the idea of Jesus as a moral teacher, but they want nothing to do with any supernatural claims about him. Others see in Jesus a mystic or a guru, and yet others a freedom fighter. Nor is the church immune to this tendency. As followers of Jesus, we too can fall into a similar trap. Maybe we like his words of comfort, but prefer not to dwell on the angry figure who overturned the traders' tables in the temple precincts. Perhaps we warm to the Christmas story, but recoil at the horrors of Good Friday. If there's one message out of the story of Palm Sunday, it's this. Just as the purchasers of the Model T Ford had to buy on Henry Ford's terms, we must accept Jesus on his terms, not ours. By the way in which he chose to enter Jerusalem, Jesus was sending a very clear message about himself to friend and foe alike. And by so doing, he was embarking on the final stages of a journey which, five days later, would lead to a criminal's death. So this morning, 
I want to look at three aspects of the message which Jesus conveyed on Palm Sunday and then consider some of the consequences of his behaviour. So let's look first of all in verses 1 to 3 at his actions. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. The story of the donkey and her cult shows us that Jesus didn't leave things till the last moment. Sometime before, he checked that his chosen form of transport would be available when he needed it. And then compare this meticulous behavior of Jesus with the shallowness of some of the crowd who thronged around him. Undoubtedly, many of them were simply celebrity stargazers. Here, after all, was a man who, according to Bartimaeus, could make blind people see. He was the sensation of the moment, the sort of visiting celebrity who, in 2017, would have been invited onto all the radio and TV talk shows. And compare, too, the meticulous preparation of Jesus with our own often sloppy attitude to following him, to spending time with him in private prayer and Bible study, to meeting regularly to worship him in public, to seeking prayerfully ways in which we can play our small role in advancing his kingdom on earth. In the Palm Sunday story, we see something of the distinction between enthusiasm and truth, between group spirit and individual perception. Group spirit A sense of belonging to a like-minded community like a church can sustain us. It's good. It can sustain us, particularly in the early stages of our Christian lives. And it can help to support us during times of difficulty. But this group spirit should run alongside rather than be a substitute for our own individual understanding and commitment. We learn about Christ, yes, in our times together, whether in a formal setting of public worship like this, or in a shared task, however humble, done in God's service. But we shouldn't let group experience stop us from making our own discoveries about Christ and hinder him from reaching the deepest parts of our personality. And the more exciting the group experience, the more carefully we need to ensure that our understanding is keeping track with our shared activity, that our spiritual growth is matching the life of the church. We need to keep 
that Palm Sunday crowd in mind. They shouted all the right words. They probably would have sung all the right songs if they'd had the music. But the events of the next few days showed that they didn't understand the full implications of what they were saying. Christian discipleship required then and requires now more than participation in one procession. Rather, it involves following the man on the donkey all the way that he leads. Now, if verses 1 to 3 say something about Jesus' actions, verses 4 to 8 speak of Jesus' intentions. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to the daughters of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. It's very easy to miss the significance of Jesus' behaviour on Palm Sunday. To us, the donkey is a lowly, humble beast. But in Palestine, it was a noble beast. Only in times of war did kings ride on a horse. When they came in peace, it was on a donkey. So Jesus, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, came to his people as a king who brought love and peace, not as a conquering hero in military splendor as the mob expected. Today, it's absolutely right that as Christians, we should be actively concerned about political and military developments worldwide. It's part of the whole business of being salt and light in the world. And it's also right that we shouldn't divorce the spiritual area of life from the political, although that's what most politicians would prefer. Because if we did that, it would make faith just a pious, private Irrelevance. But we should beware trying to recruit Jesus to our political cause as the zealot did in the drama. As if we can pigeonhole him according to the narrow concerns of this world. There are, after all, MPs of sincere Christian commitment in all the mainstream political parties. And I dare say that each party could put together a line of arguments to show that they are the natural political heirs of Jesus. But Jesus defies such pigeonholing. His prime purpose was, in the last week of his life, and is, in 2017, to reconcile human beings with their creator. 
And that is a very divisive purpose. As in the last days of Jesus' life, some will welcome him with enthusiasm. Others, however, will plot his downfall and the downfall of those who would follow him. Consider how in our generation, long-held Judeo-Christian values are constantly being attacked by those who follow a relentlessly secular agenda. Now as then, light confronts darkness, life confronts death. So actions and intentions. Then in verses 9 to 11, we see something about Jesus' method of communicating with people. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd's words show that they understood the meaning of Jesus' method of transport into the city. For as verse 5 tells us, Jesus was acting out an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And Jesus' technique of communicating through actions and not just words reached its dramatic climax just five days later when he hung dying on a cross as a way of showing once and for all the love of God for his people. And Jesus commissioned us, his followers, in turn, to communicate his message. Part of that commission involves words. Remember what Jesus said at the end of Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. But part of the commission also involves practical action. In chapter 25 of Matthew, Jesus looked ahead to the end of time. Then the king, that's God, will say to those on his right, come, take your inheritance, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Just as Palm Sunday cannot be separated from Maundy Thursday or Good Friday, so our Christian living can't be separated from our daily life on miserable Thursdays and grim Fridays and other days of the week as well. At the end of our drama, the owner of the donkey looked at Jesus and asked himself, he was our king, I know that, but how 
was he going to take his kingdom? Verses 12 to 17 begin to provide the answer. They show us that although Jesus was not a military leader, the building of his kingdom would involve confrontation, not conformity to people's expectations. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? The confrontation is obvious in verses 12 and 13 where Jesus threw out of the temple area those who were exploiting worshippers in the name of religion and imposing costs which made it hard for humble people to worship God publicly. The confrontation is less obvious in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus healed the blind and the lame. The second book of Samuel, chapter 5, tells the story of how King David attacked and captured the city of Jerusalem, where the temple was later built. The citizens of Jerusalem showed their contempt for David and his army by sending a message. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. And so angry was David at this display of contempt that once he had captured the city, he declared, no blind or lame welcome here. Nothing to remind me of the mockery of my enemies. So when Jesus healed the blind and the lame in the temple area, he was welcoming in those who'd been kept out. He was healing those who'd been scorned. He was confronting deeply held prejudices. During one of the the recent midweek Lent gatherings, David Lee challenged us to face the question, who are the people whom each of us scorn, against whom we harbour prejudice? whom we see as being beyond God's grace, whom we would not want to welcome into our place of worship. We meet this morning at the beginning of the most important week in the Christian calendar. And I would suggest that our prayer for ourselves and for one another might well be that in this week we see afresh, or maybe even for the first time, the real Jesus of the Bible. 
not a fantasy figure of our imagination. For as with the Model T Ford, that is the only choice on offer. Amen.